welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Bree Fallon, and with me is... Dave McConaughey. So nice to hear your voice again, Bree, and to be with you again on our podcast. Yes, it's wonderful to hear from you today. I can't sort of fathom the fact that you texted me and you said it was snowing in your part of the world and it's 38 degrees Celsius in my part of the world. It's lovely and and snowy. It's still slightly snowing outside. Yesterday, it was flurrying all day. My students and I were very distracted over our Zoom calls pointing out, you know, the snowflakes going by out the the windows. But today we have uh, um, something pretty interesting that that you did, uh, your interview with Carol Cusack about sacred trees, belief, mythology, and practice. Really looking forward to it. Take it away. It's Brianne Fallon here, and I'm here with Professor of Religious Studies, Carol Cusack from the University of Sydney. Now, Carol is one of, I would say, the original friends of the Religious Studies Project, and she will be familiar to many of you. Now, I was going through Carol's biography today and trying to slim it down, and there was just so much to cover. So I'll just name a few of the many things that she has going on at the moment. She was editor of the Journal of Religious History from 2007 to 2015 and was founding editor of the International Journal of the Study of New Religions, published by Equinox. She serves on editorial boards for numerous journals and book series. She's editor of Literature and Aesthetics and co-editor of Fieldwork in Religion. She is the author of Anime, Religion and Spirituality, published by Equinox in 2015, Invented Religions, published by Ashgate in 2010, and The Sacred Tree, published by Cambridge Scholars Publishing in 2011, as well as countless articles. But today we're going to focus on the idea of trees. So how are you, Carol? How are you going? I'm good, thank you, Brianne. It's wonderful to speak to you. And it's a while since I've done one of these interviews for the RSP, so it's interesting to think about something new to talk to people about. Well, you're here speaking on trees. We're doing a bit of a month on nature, and I will just say you stepped in at the last minute, so thank you very much for that. Now, you've published extensively on trees from a religious studies perspective. We mentioned your work, The Sacred Tree, Ancient and Medieval Manifestations, but you also recently published um, or edited a special volume on trees. Is that correct? I did edit an issue of the Journal for the Study of Religion, Nature and Culture that had a set of articles on trees in it. And in that one, I did some work for the uh, studying the Glastonbury thorn, which I suppose is one of the more famous, like, named holy trees. So, yeah, I mean, I'm interested in trees in a whole range of ways, actually. And it's funny that you said, you, you know, you're having a month on nature because I do remember when the sacred tree came out that a couple of people who reviewed it, you know, being sort of generally positive, were a bit disappointed, I think, that it actually wasn't that much about, like, living trees or ecology or nature worship. It was a a quite sort of theoretical and conceptual kind of book. And I guess when it comes to the more ecological stuff, Um, I've done on and off for years work on the Church of All Worlds, one of the modern pagan religions founded in the US in 1962. And that particular group of modern pagans um, see the earth, Gaia, 
as a living being, a living goddess and human beings constituting a kind of planetary consciousness. Uh, and in that sense, the, the planet is actually itself the goddess. So that's also about nature and about ecology and about um, an ecologically responsible lifestyle, but also in some senses quite, I suppose, a theoretical approach to trees and nature in general. So you've mentioned a couple of ideas there. Firstly, the name, the naming of sort of a specific holy tree. You mentioned the Glastonbury thorn, but also this idea almost as of trees as world structures. So perhaps we could begin with an overview of the different forms in which trees appear in religious rhetoric and practice, such as myth, world structures, and so on. Okay. Well, the thing is, it's difficult to generalise, and I suppose all the work that I've done has pretty much been done in a Western context, Mm -hmm. and looking at, like, Indo-European mythology and parallel sorts of motifs and stories and also um, ritual contexts that trees are fulfilled in a number of those cultures. So looking at ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Anglo-Saxon England, um, early medieval Ireland, uh, and then looking at the way in which those cultures in the Middle Ages converted to Christianity and in some cases preserved the idea of the holy tree um, in some form or other, but certainly not um, in quite the same kind of cosmological way that the pre-Christian cultures had it. So I suppose everything I say pretty much is Western Indo-European derived. Some of it is pre-Christian, some of it is post the conversion periods. But when I wrote The Sacred Tree, I'd written a couple of articles beforehand that had come out of my PhD research, which was actually about early medieval missions. And I'd noticed that some of the saints' lives, the missionaries' lives that were written from the 4th and early 5th century onwards pitted the missionaries against holy trees that pagans had been attached to or understood to be in some sense the dwelling place of spirits or deities. And in terms of conversion to Christianity, um, these missionaries often became quite famous as, as people who cut down sacred trees and their promotion of the Christian God was strengthened when the seeming deities or spirits who were supposed to be resident in such trees didn't actually punish them for this extraordinary sacrilege in chopping down the holy tree. And so I started off thinking about trees really as a tiny little bit, you know, like like one tile in a mosaic that was my thesis for my PhD, which really didn't have anything much to do with trees at all. It was about missions and conversion techniques. And so when I wrote The Sacred Tree, I'd been thinking about that for at least 10 years after the PhD and collecting little bits of evidence here and there. And I was thinking, well, I could write a book about 
why these pre-Christian people thought trees were important and why, for example, missionaries thought they were important enough to cut down. What were the beliefs that were actually attached to them? So there's a whole bunch of things that you can sort of comment on. And the two big ones are the idea that the tree serves as an axis mundi, a kind of centre of the world, Um, and in that role it kind of also acts as a mapper of territory and as a gathering place of people who accept that it is this particular kind of centre and it's important to realise that When I talk about this, I'm talking about theoretical trees, such as trees that appear in mythology, um, but also actual real trees, such as the trees in early medieval Ireland, which were often called inauguration trees because kings, there were multiple kings in early medieval Ireland. We might call them kinglets, kind of chieftains, not really kind of, supreme in the sense that one imagines a king were often inaugurated beside a tree that in some sense symbolized their territory by being its center so that's one really important image of the tree the other one is the idea that the tree is itself in some sense an imago mundi that is an image or a picture of the world that as a symbol or um a representation it can be seen to encompass everything in the world. Now, that's a little bit less common. The Axis Mundi idea is a lot more common. And actually, the two of them have significant overlap, as I think will be be clear as we move along. And there's a couple of other sort of small things that you notice about trees that aren't kind of precisely aligned to those two um, big meanings which include, for example, the fact that seemingly in a lot of early European cultures, quite rough, almost, you know, minimally shaped logs were often used as images of the gods, sometimes costumed in um, quite uh, luxurious attire. We know, for example, in um, ancient Greece that the goddess Hera who in a kind of classical Olympian context is thought of as the consort of Zeus and sitting on a throne in their god's palace on Mount Olympus, she actually is quite often imaged as a kind of rough log in much earlier sorts of liturgical contexts. And that also shows us one other thing, that the, the tree is alive, you know, it's, it's rooted in the ground, but you can cut it down, as indeed our missionaries already mentioned did, but in the ancient world the context of cutting it down became very interesting and important to me as well because, for example, again, to use an example from classical Greece, there were specific divine or semi-divine beings who were believed to live in trees, the the hamadryads. And if you actually cut a tree, you killed the spirit, the hamadryad who lived in it. So even quite simple things like constructions in wood in 
most European pagan cultures, there are folkloric survivals or occasional textual survivals that explain that when you cut down a tree, you have to make offerings and libations and you have to pray and you have to ask the divine being in the tree for permission to cut it down. And once you have cut it down, you have a thing where you get something that's related to sacred trees, which is a pillar monument. Um, And in some cases that can be a tree trunk. In other cases it might be um, made of stone. Ken Dowden, who's a very interesting classical scholar, mostly a Roman specialist, but he wrote a really good book on European mythology. He points out at one point that the pillar monument made of a tree trunk is a really interesting kind of intersection between the stone monuments that we see in prehistoric European cultures and the kind of living world of, of holy trees. And, of course, again, to stick with Rome, Dowden's own specialist area, we have situations like boundary stones, which used to be set up um by a specific kind of ritual uh, which involved libations and offerings and the, the farmers whose boundary was being mapped out agreeing and praying together. And there was even a god called Terminus who is just, he's not actually anthropomorphized, he's just imaged as a pillar, but he is the god of boundaries and setting up Limits, And so I think that that is possibly something that also links with the idea of the tree as being able to mark the centre of a realm and the territory of a, of a king. So there's a lot of that's all kind of prehistoric material um, that I can kind of embellish or, or explain further. Um, so that's kind of where I started. Hmm. And you've, you've, your work has sort of honed in on different types of trees. You've worked on the Glastonbury thorn, but also the Fortingall yew, a Scottish holy tree. Maybe we'll start with the yew as a specific example. Well, that, that's a really um, nice example to start with too because um, my association with the Religious Studies Project, of course, is really um, – about the fact that I spend a lot of time in Europe and when I'm in Europe, I spend a lot of time in Scotland. And so it's very important that um, I've become interested in doing research in Scotland when I have the opportunity to. And that came out of a long association with religious studies at Edinburgh who people who couldn't have been more kind or more hospitable. And the Fortingall U, it was actually, I think, the second of my Scottish folklore articles. I started looking at just phenomena that were around me while I was staying in Edinburgh and doing my research leave or whatever it was that I was doing there. And it always astonished me that I'd talk to colleagues and I'd say, oh, I've just been reading, you know, that there's this festival happening. And the answer I would typically get was, oh, I never, I've never been to it. Or and then I found <laughs> supporting all of you and people said, oh, no, no, I've never been there. Oh, 
oh, I might have heard of it, you know, and I was thinking this is was really strange. So I started collecting material about it because actually I knew a bit about the Glastonbury Thorn already and I'd um, really liked this idea that there were some holy trees that somehow continued from they, they could have, if you like, a pagan interpretation or a pagan meaning. And certainly in our contemporary world where resurgent modern paganism is very important, you'll often find pagans laying claim to the Glastonbury thorn or the Fortingal yew. But they are also trees that are very firmly situated within a Christian context. And the Fortingal yew is actually in a churchyard. Um, so, you know, it's very firmly within a Christian context. So I ended up reading a whole lot of folklore and bits and pieces about it, realising not much had been written, thinking, oh, this would be a really nice thing to write an article about. Uh, it's like a, it's a small topic, a bounded topic. And also I could just get on the train and go and do a day trip and go and see this tree, make sure that I could actually get a grip on what its kind of context was. Now, it's an important place because it's a huge tree and there's a lot of argument about how old it is. And it also is botanically astonishingly interesting because it has changed sex, which is something that uh, people are often rather amazed by, but yew trees can in fact, some other trees can change sex too. And the Fortingal yew um, has done that and been remarked upon by botanists and made it onto nature programs. But it's also been part of, it's a European thing for people to vote for trees that they particularly like. And so, you know, Britain's most loved tree or Britain's most popular tree. Um, so the Fortingal yew has also scored quite highly in those sorts of, um, you know, popular imaginings of holy trees and landscape and so on and so forth. So it's in Perthshire. It's a fairly lengthy day trip out of Edinburgh to do. Um, and it's at a very old site associated with early medieval Christianity um, dedicated to St. Credi, who was reported to be the Bishop of Iona, which is a holy island in the Inner Hebrides. And he was supposed to have been bishop somewhere between 697 and 712. And Fortingall, which is a modern name, um, is sometimes said to be taken from two old Gaelic words, Fortair, which means stronghold, and kill, which means chapel or church. So Perthshire has been inhabited for at least 5,000 years. Um, and the Fortingal U has a lot of layers of meaning wrapped around it. Um, it connects Scotland directly with the life of Jesus, which actually the Glastonbury Thorn does too, and this becomes very important for the way that it's fitted itself into a Christian context. It's also located at kind of a connection point between paganism and Christianity because it's associated with the missionaries in the very early days of Christianity in Perthshire. It's also got connections with the royal family and it's amazing how many little bits of folkloric 
kind of interest in the UK, even in places like Scotland, often are connected to royalty and stories about kings and queens. Glastonbury Thorn has that too. Um, and it's very, very popular in terms of art, literature, folklore, kind of modern um, cultural symbol sort of ideas. So I thought, what a fantastic thing to research. And because it's a you, yous have a particular kind of connection. They're unusually long-lived. Um, I mean, there are some people who actually argue that the Fortingal you is 5,000 years old. I don't know how likely that is or not, but the common you, the botanical name is Taxus baccata, does live for a very, very, very long time. Um, they're usually associated with death. So being in a churchyard is sensible um, because lots of churchyards in the UK have used in them and there are very interesting folkloric connections with churchyards as well. Um, there's, I think it's a Breton tradition, but of course Brittany is a Celtic culture as well and possibly links to the Scottish Gaelic culture in that sense, that um, the ewes grow in churchyards because when people are buried in the churchyards, um, the ewes grow out of their hearts through their chests. Wow. So the idea that a ewe is in a, ch in a churchyard is, is logical, though, of course, most people like landscape archaeologists and people like that would say that often they suspect the churches were built next to the trees because the trees are very old and were there first. And I think in the right. case of Fortingall, that's definitely true. If we could just take a step back, you mentioned that the Fortingall you has a, a direct connection to Jesus, if I heard correctly. Could you yes. just let us know a bit about that? Okay. Well, one of the things that's really fascinating about the Fortingall you and the Glastonbury Thorn is that they have both become, through folkloric tropes, directly linked to the life of Jesus. Now, this is something that was tremendously important in the Middle Ages. You know, because Jesus was alive and he lived and he preached in Jerusalem and in Judea and Galilee, and that's why the Holy Land is called the Holy Land. And in the Middle Ages, Christian Europe was deeply invested in the Holy Land. And we know that this gave rise to everything from peaceful pilgrimages to armed crusades, and sometimes it was a little bit difficult to tell the difference between the two, you know, someone mm. might be a, a pilgrim someday and a warrior on another day. But the holy places after the Fourth Crusade, really, I suppose, um, gradually slipped away from the control of Christian Europe. And um, there's a really interesting book about the Holy Grail by medieval scholar called Richard Barber, and he points out that once it became quite difficult to get to the holy places, that when they were under Islamic control, um, Christians found it more difficult to go to see 
the holy places of the origin of their faith, somehow many countries in Europe developed traditions, legends, folklore, myths that meant that they had some direct connection to the Holy Land and they could argue that their own country was in some sense the Holy Land. Now, a Fortingal use case is a little bit more um, remote and most people don't know about it, but the Glastonbury Thorn, probably everybody knows that there's a legend that Joseph of Arimathea brought Jesus to England when he was just a, a boy, mm-hmm. brought him to Glastonbury. And it's what that poem that became a hymn set to music by Sir Hubert Parry, the poem is, of course, by William Blake, um, and it's commonly called Jerusalem, but the actual name of the piece is Milton. It says, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green and was the holy land of God on England's pleasant pastures seen. And it refers to this legend which became very powerful that Glastonbury was England's Jerusalem. It was the place where Jesus had been. And so I think the Glastonbury Thorn probably provides a kind of model for regional holy trees like the Fortingal Yew. Um, the connection that the Fortingal Yew has with Jesus is a little bit more um, strange, but it has to do with um, Pontius Pilate, actually. And we have um, a myth about Pilate having been born in Scotland, in Perthshire, just near Fortingal, and that his father was a Roman ambassador, but his mother was a local woman, according to this legend. Now, we know historically this is not true, but it was very important. It's claimed in the legend that before he became a judge in the Holy Land and played such a role in the Passion of Jesus that he'd actually studied with Scottish Druids. And the fact that he had said in the Gospels to have asked Jesus what is truth was generally um, explained by this legend as being part of his um, education in Druidic wisdom. Now, most of the folklorists who've looked this up said the legend is totally unlikely, it's not true, but that's not actually what matters because what matters is that it associated the site through Pilate with the lifetime of Jesus and one of the dramatis personae who was part of the Jesus story. So Fortingal didn't go so far as to claim that Jesus himself had been there in the way that Glastonbury does, but yes. it had like one of the main characters of Jesus's story growing up there. Even though that's potentially a a questionable character in Jesus's story. Well, yeah, but it's a very interesting one um, because that was one of the things that loads of different countries did. This whole way of trying to connect themselves with the narrative of the life of Jesus and with a way to sacralize their land, and quite often 
the people who they picked on or the the um, objects, like, for example, the, the Lance of Longinus or the Holy Grail are two other option objects that are often invoked in these sorts of folk tales. Um, they do have questionable roles. Um, the Lance is used by a soldier who's told to pierce Jesus' side to check whether he's actually alive or not, and it's important for the um you know for the for the certification of his actual death which is vital for there to be an actual resurrection so pilot is kind of seen i suppose as someone who's predestined to play this role hmm. there you go it's interesting to me that they would try and make that connection to the to pilot through the tree in comparison to the glastonbury thorn that seems to make a lot more sort of sense to me as a, as a pilgrimage point. Um, but I'm wondering if we can kind of take a bit of a, a turn in this episode now, because we've talked a lot about medieval and ancient examples of trees. And I would love to get your thoughts on sort of the place of, of the tree in more contemporary practice. You mentioned the rise of, I think, um, modern paganisms was the phrase that you used. I might be misquoting you there. But how has sort of rise of the environmentalism movement in in our current world sort of changed or re-established a focus on trees? I'm not sure if I'm making that up, but what, what are your thoughts on that? There's a whole lot of things that modern paganism and certain esoteric ideas about nature and landscape have done. And in a place like Britain, these ideas are enacted in a landscape that is dotted with monuments, prehistoric, medieval, even towns and cities have particular traditions associated with them, including folk, specific folk dances and um, customs that whether or not they are in fact um, pagan, many modern pagans claim as their own. And so landscape is tremendously important for pagan worship. I mean, there are pagans who do ritual indoors. It's always been possible to cast a circle and to conduct ritual inside. Um, There's always plenty of instructions in Books of Shadows and um, how-to volumes for new or interested people. But basically, modern paganism, kind of going back to Gerald Gardner, who founded Wicca, um, has always idealised ritual in nature, ritual in the open, usually in terms of Gardnerian Wicca, also um, conducted sky-clad or naked, and This is constant, Um, but Wicca, of course, is only one particular kind of modern paganism and, say, for example, modern Druidry, um, again, founded in Britain, has um, various connections, actually. Ross Nichols, who founded the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids, um, was actually... Um, 
a friend of gardeners, I think. Uh, but druids in particular are particularly interested in sacred groves, in the holy trees of the ancient Celts. And I've mentioned at the very beginning that there were these inauguration trees in Ireland and we know that they came as a particular kind. Like there are several trees that are considered to be more sacred than others. Oaks, ashes, yews are all really, really important. Um, when you look at a place like Australia, which of course has a completely different kind of climate and completely different sort of foliage and vegetation, nevertheless our local druids uh, are strongly engaging with landscape and with um, the bush, the kind of Australian bush that is so different to the wooded areas of Europe but still particularly important. And all of these particular new religious groups that grow out of pagan impulses or the desire to revive um, traditions that seemingly uh, were eclipsed with the coming of Christianity, all of them are comfortable with the designation of being like a nature-based faith or a nature religion. So different pagan leaders deal with that sort of aspect in particular ways. And I mentioned the Church of All Worlds earlier on. Um, when it was founded in 1962, it had two founders, Tim Zell and his friend Lance Christie. They were students together. They read a book by um, Robert A. Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land, and they decided that they wanted to kind of make the story and especially the the church in it, the Church of All Worlds, a real-world thing. But they conceived of their approach in a kind of twofold way. And so after they finished college and they moved on from, from being together all the time as college students, um, Lance Christie became head of like the environmental wing of the group and it was called the, a water brotherhood and it was called ATL, A-T-L. And Tim Zell, who later became Oberon Zell Ravenheart, he became like the leader of the religious side of things. And what that meant was that Lance Christie actually had a career, did a PhD in environmental science and became an environmental activist. Um, these groups were always kind of part and parcel of each other, but they wanted the ecological work to be taken seriously and not to be seen as some kind of flaky religious thing, which was why it was specifically instantiated as a separate kind of wing driven by the same values and the same desires to protect nature. So that's one really explicit case. Um, all the people who were kind of part of the Church of All Worlds also tried to live in communal households, often out in remote rural areas in the US, um, very often without electricity or running water, apart from nearby streams or wells. And the general idea of treading really lightly upon the planet and preserving the planet 
from things like overdevelopment as well as uh, environmental devastation, they're kind of core pagan values pretty much everywhere. I'm thinking too, apart from that sort of specific example of the church of all worlds and the way in which sort of religion and ecology was sort of separated in that example, I'm, I'm thinking you'll, you'll remember very recently in Australia, a sacred Indigenous tree was cut down, I believe, for a road. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's coming to your mind, but then we see sort of the opposite way where sort of modernity had separated out those two concepts and then all of a sudden they were sort of thrust back together in the modern media and this um, obviously this great upheaval occurred about about the cutting down of this sacred tree. And I wonder if uh, the modern focus on environmentalism meant that that got more airtime as an example as opposed to maybe, say, five or ten years ago. That's a really interesting question and actually it opens up another fabulous um, way to kind of look at modern paganism or modern kind of earth-based religions and trees. Like the Aboriginal sacred trees in Australia, we have a very bad record in Australia, I know you know this, Brienne, of relations between white colonialist Australians and Indigenous Australians and Indigenous values, stories, traditions, art, customs, culture are habitually pushed to the edge in Australia. Most people don't know a great deal about them and many, many people care even less. But it is true that every now and then something breaks through. And the tree that you're referring to is called the Jabwarung tree. It was an Indigenous directions tree, which was a very, very important um, tree for the Jabwarung women in the area. It was a birthing tree and it was in Victoria. So um, people listening may know that in Australia there are many, many different Indigenous groups and traditions and um, sacred sites and objects tend to be um, specific to specific peoples and areas. And the interesting thing was that the Indigenous landowners in Victoria had been negotiating with the government for quite some time and they had a register of around about 250 culturally significant trees that they wanted to save from destruction. And the problem was, of course, that they just didn't have every tree. And this one got bulldozed in order to clear land for a highway. It's just a terrible, terrible situation. I mean, there were protesters on the site, people who, you know, were clinging to the tree and had tied themselves, some who climbed into trees and were refusing to leave. The tree in question was a yellow box tree and it was probably about 350 years old Um, and it was, you know, a really tragic situation. We've, you know, we started this conversation and, you know, when you start this conversation you think, you know, we're talking about, about trees and it's something that perhaps we you know, sort of 
don't really think about in this sort of an in-depth sense. But when you really start to unpack it, the forting all you, the you know, the Glastonbury thorn, the concept of trees as the axis mundi and the tree we've just been discussing that was bulldozed in Victoria, you see that they really are kind of central almost in an ontolo- ontological sense that, that, you know, they're a great symbol of rootedness and perhaps we need sort of more research done in this area. Well, I think this is one of the things about the whole Imago Mundi thing. You probably know, I'm sure loads of people do, that in lots of mythologies there's a vision of the world that isn't like, you know, our little globe, like that famous photograph from space, but there is an idea of the world looking a bit like a human figure. Mm. And in lots and lots of mythologies, I've already mentioned the Hammer Dryads, there's a sense in which you see um, a tree and you it looks like a person in some ways. Um, it's actually something that's even quoted in the Gospels. When Jesus heals a blind man, he says, I see people, they look to me like trees walking. Um, everybody who loves Tolkien knows about tree beard and the ants. Mm. Um We have this idea that there's like a kinship between people and trees and I think in particular the idea of tree beings like hamadryads make that quite explicit. Trees are, you know, alive in a way that human beings are alive. There's an archaeologist called Miranda Oldhouse Green. She says at one point that trees bleed if you cut them, you know, they have sap, um, they have kind of bones or structure, but basically they're a highly relatable um, life form that exists in this kind of synergy with human beings. And, yeah, I think that there's a lot of room for an an understanding of people's relationships with trees. Yeah, even if you think about it, I mean, it's nearly time to wrap up the episode, but trees also get diseases that you can actually see. You know, you can see a diseased tree. And as you say, there's that sort of sense of synergy perhaps that, you know, is something that we could keep researching in religious studies. Particularly, I think what would interest me is, you know, amongst amongst you know, younger millennial populations, for example, in Australia, we've had enormous climate marches, particularly amongst school students, and what the tree means to them, I think, would be particularly interesting from a religious studies perspective. Absolutely. And I think, for example, I mean, it's not something that I've done much research on, but my colleague, um, Louise Fowler-Smith, who's a practising artist and also was an art academic for many years at University of New South Wales. She's been researching for for decades um, tree veneration in um, Indian village culture in the subcontinent. And this is a culture where the interrelationships between people and trees are much, much closer to the surface like people actually understand them the trees as relational beings that members of the community connect with and engage with and I mean Louise has done some amazing work the only religious studies work that I think she's done on those particular that particular research she 
is maybe two articles she's published, but she's done a lot of amazing artworks and installations uh, recording just extraordinary trees um, that have connections with human communities. Well, I just wanted to finish by thanking you, Carol. We have covered so much in this episode and I feel like we could just keep going with different examples and also contemporary examples of how the tree has sort of made its way into into the media of late, but we should probably wrap up. So thank you again so much for joining us today on the Religious Studies Project. It's been a great pleasure as always, Brianne, and congratulations to you and Dave for maintaining such great standard after taking over from the original editors, Chris and David. I look forward to all the new things that you two will bring to the RSP. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode with longtime friend of the Religious Studies Project, Professor Carol Cusack. Don't forget to follow us on our socials, Facebook and Twitter at Project RS. And if you would like to support us, head to our website and head to the donate link. And you can become a longtime supporter of us with Patreon. Now, next week, we have an interview with RSP co-founder Chris Cotter and he will be interviewing Tim Stacey. Until then, thanks thanks for for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne, and our opportunities digest by Ella Buck. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening.